0: In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to James Long about building actual, a distributed, local first JavaScript application with no central database. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 126. hey everyone welcome to another episode of the full stack radio podcast i'm your host adam wadden and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with james long who you are probably most familiar as the creator of prettier which is a tool that's sort of uh, taken the web by storm at this point i think basically everyone is using it to, i can't really remember what it was like to have to think about formatting files now i just like type stuff the code goes wherever it wants on the screen and Command S, all right, everything's cleaned up again. Um, But today, um, what I wanted to talk to you about, James, is not Prettier, because um, you've probably talked about Prettier to death at this point, but I wanted to dig into uh, this new application you're working on, this new kind of software business you're building called Actual, which is a tool for helping people sort of manage their personal budgets and stuff like that. Um, so the thing that I was most excited to talk to you about is sort of the way that you've decided to approach building this app, which I think is a bit different from how a lot of people working on the web would have approached uh, building something. And that is that you're building this app. Um, I believe it's like an Electron app currently, but the whole thing is designed to like not require uh, network access at all. Is that right?
1: Yes. So it started as a desktop application. Um, and so it kind of started from just the typical local app, which, you know, is, that's not really innovative at all by itself. It's just a local app. Um, and then it grew into this thing where I was like, Oh crap, I need a mobile app, uh, which means crap. I need to sync them somehow. And then it just sort of, uh, I kind of fell into it in a way. Um, but yeah, I have always loved the, I honestly, I've always loved like local desktop apps. They're just like super fast. They're always there. And then, um, so i was kind of bending over backwards to try to keep that experience but still have kind of the capabilities of what the web offers and so i kind of took a lot of like several years of just kind of learning and and prototyping um and i kind of fell into this interesting pattern Um, so i kind of came at it from a different angle
0: yeah so i think it'd be cool to sort of dig into that and learn more about like what that even means and how other people can kind of use some of these ideas to sort of build something like this themselves. So I guess maybe like the first place um, to start coming at this as someone who's never really like built something this way. Like I've always just built stuff on the web that loads from a server. You know what I mean? Um, When you're trying to build something that's designed to just work locally on someone's computer, even though you're using like web technologies, like what are the sorts of things that you have to take into account and consider um, that someone who's used to just building stuff on the web normally doesn't have to think about so much
1: um, there's a there's a lot it's kind of, I'm still kind of mulling around these ideas uh, so I might not be extremely eloquent yet uh, but one of the main things is just that um, you're you have to, if you want to build something local um, I mean for the web you kind of just guess that like your data might be there it might not and we kind of hack around the fact that, your network connection might be slow or you might not have one by having these caches. That's like, if we've already loaded this item, we're going to stick it into the cache and Hey, and then you you go offline and everything is still, if the website is still actually there in your browser, you could at least like click on the item again and it's still there. Um, but if you're building it local um, I mean, honestly, more often than not, I have, there are things that I don't have to deal with that the web has to deal with because I I can just assume that all of the items are already there. Um, so it's an interesting question because I'm trying to think like um, I think what you need to fi- what you need to, th- to figure out is basically how just how to make the app run when it's offline, um, because honestly, in my opinion, it's not actually a truly local offline app. If I can't restart my computer, um, have everything not running, booted up from a cold start and everything is just there. I mean, um, so it's I mean, it's. I mean, there's a lot you have to think about, right? I mean, it's pretty much a a re-architecture of making everything uh, like local so that it just works that way.
0: Yeah, there's definitely like a lot of web apps that I use that have like, you know, quote unquote offline support, but the way that you achieve that is, okay, before you get on the plane, make sure that you have it open in your uh, browser, and that yep. it's there waiting so that when network access is lost, everything is still booted up and ready to go. Uh, but something like that works like a native Mac OS application or something where, yeah, I can open the Notes app while I'm on an airplane and I don't have to make any considerations about it at all. Like right. that's that's a whole different sort of ball game. So maybe a good place to start would be talking about um, kind of like some of the technology choices that you made uh, when putting this thing together and then digging deeper into how certain things even work like like what you're doing to store the data locally because i know there's all sorts of different web technologies for that and in electron you have like direct access to the file system so you have all sorts of other you know ways that you can handle this sort of thing so uh, i guess to start like what how is the app like built like are you using like react or Vue or something else or um you know what are kind of all the, the pieces in play there
1: sure uh, so it uses electron for the native like to, to wrap a web technology um, app into a um, a native desktop app so all of the files are are local obviously and so the the, the app itself can at least always boot um, and there's actually always um, also a mobile app as well so I'll, I'll always kind of talk about that just a little bit and that's a native ios app uh, i don't have android yet but that's written in react native and so that um, it won't be too hard to port it to android once i find time um, and so react is kind of the backbone of, of all of this as well because the mobile app is written in react native and the desktop app is written in react um, and so the great thing about using electron is that you can load n- native modules so this is kind of the thing that you can't do with the web is you can't just like s- suddenly pull in a, a precompiled binary so um, i use a native compiled SQLite as my primary database storage? Um, and now, I mean, this might be like an, like another question later. I don't think that's actually, I would love to use the web. I don't think it's, uh, I think Electron is kind of a stopgap and there's actually a lot of problems with the ability to do that because there's security um, considerations there. So it's not really the greatest thing, but like for, for where we are right now as a state of all of this technology, um, it's a good place to be. And I mean, it's really the only the only thing that I can do right now. Um, so to move forward a little bit, though, uh, the fundamental technology that makes this work um, is uh, CRDTs. It's actually something that comes from, the d- from distributed uh, databases and distributed systems that people use for uh, on, on the, um, the back end. And so CRDT stands for conflict-free replicated data types. Um, and it's basically a data type that allows... This kind of functionality where you can sync everything across devices, um, and so essentially, my primary database is SQLite, but there's kind of a secondary um, index of all of the data. So actually, this might sound a little bad, but every single every single piece of data is actually du- um, duplicated twice, which is okay. to- totally fine in an app like this because like we're not talking nearly big data. Like we're not talking like we're not even talking about like 100 megabytes. The most databases are like seven megabytes sure. like total like with the duplicated yeah. data right and th- so this like, is
0: like an interesting distinction because of the fact that like a database is for one user of the application it's not like you have like one data store that has to yep. like manage everybody so of course yeah the scale there is going to be totally different
1: yes totally and that's a whole nother yeah every single decision um, that actually works out really nicely for for me because I'm a solo founder and so I don't have to be managing this complex server with all of this stuff going on. Uh, is really great, um, and so but yes, yeah, so all of your data is duplicated twice. Um, I it's very hard to succinctly say this. I won't go on too too much about it, but basically, you have your 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 normalized data. That's just normal SQLite tables that you can query with normal SQL queries, yeah. like select uh, select star from transactions where the amount is less than a thousand dollars or. Stuff like that, and then you have this other database, which is the CRDT database, and it's basically a um, a state based CRDT, which is basically a list of values and a hybrid logical clock. And the clock gives you the ability to uh, have um, mo- what's called moneticity in your database, where you can or w- with your messages, and so you can actually always re- replay them in the same order that they were actually that they actually happened. And so all all of this comes from the like back end distributed database um technology which is which is interesting because um originally i was like i do not i don't need all of that like uh, that was super overwhelming i'm sure some people sure, are listening yeah, right yeah. now and just like what are you talking about like we're just like let me go back to build build my little web app that you know just queries from the database from the back end is way easier um but i ha- i i worked with this for like a year or two cuz i thought I, this this was this was a really compelling User experience, and I think that's where we need to start. We need to start with the user experience, um, which is like I said. I think the ability to just like boot up your app and have all of all of your data there is super super compelling, and the the ability to just not depend on your network connection if it's slow or if it's not. I mean, it's not even just if you're offline. It's just if if your network connection is slow. If that makes the performance of your app slow, I just think that's a terrible user experience. I mean, to depend on your network connection, which is literally the slowest, like, uh, the slowest IO that um, that happens ever, to make that, like, <laughs> depend, uh, the performance of your app depend on that is it's just crazy to me. And so, we like, there are various levels of solving this, which is, like, all of the caching layers. All of that stuff is, is Band-Aids. Um, and I... I have a problem where whenever I do something, I tend to like go as far as I possibly can. And so this was me going as far as I possibly can with offline apps, which is like, I went, um, I had some friends around me that was like, dude, you should be looking, um, looking into CRDTs. This stuff is like magical. It's amazing. You should build your app with this. And so they eventually um, convinced me to do that. And so uh, I'm trying to think about how to talk a little bit more about it without actually trying to explain them because that would... Probably be another like five minutes, but essentially, the CRDTs is basically the backbone of everything. The data itself in the normalized SQLite database is not synced. It's the messages that are in your in your in the in, uh, in the SQLite database, and those are what are sent around and synced. And CRDTs make it super easy to be very resilient, very uh, fault proof, because you can have um, like your network connection craps out while they are Um, in the middle of syncing multiple clients, right? Um, And eventually it will come into the same, they will all converge into the exact same database with the exact same data in the exact same form. And so that's called eventual consistency. And that's a contrast to strong consistency, which is where, which that's basically what most web apps right now. Most web apps require strong consistency where you make some changes and then for, for you to sync with everybody everything has to pause the world and you have to submit your changes to one literally one database somewhere on some server and has to commit that somewhere and it has this and it has this block everything else from from committing to that piece of item and say okay i have finally written this to the disk and then it can come back and then it can process other people's messages yeah um and so this is an eventually consistent distributed app uh and so hopefully that made sense
0: yeah totally it kind of reminds me of like um something that sounds similar that i've had people talk about on the show before which is like event sourcing um and just like everything is kind of based on this stream of sort of instructions and you can sort of use those to kind of replay you know the actions that someone has taken and derive sort of a state from that is that like a comparison that makes sense to you or is there like really important differences there
1: it's a comparison that makes sense. There are some important differences. Um, and I was just I, I was actually just thinking about it this morning about how to explain it. Um, so there 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 are various levels to solve this offline problem. So first of all, it's like the caching. We can just like store stuff in the memory. That doesn't solve the um, doesn't solve like the boot up problem, right? Okay. Um event sourcing doesn't really solve the boot up problem either. It's just like a better way to if you happen to go offline, like if I'm using notion and I go offline, they have, they have what feels like pretty good offline support. If I go offline, I can like still write a bunch of documents. I can do a bunch of stuff. And then I come back online and it like syncs. Um, It has this weird behavior of like completely refreshing the app. I don't know if you use notion, but like, like, have you ever noticed you're like, you come online and like the entire app just shows a, just shows a loading screen. And then I'm, I'm assuming it's because of the syncing, right? Like it, it probably pushed all of its changes, but then it's like, I don't know what changes the server, like other people made to the server. And so it's going to refresh the entire app. And so that you can see, see, what like, see whatever is there. Um, I think that the more robust your syncing gets, the less you have to do that kind of stuff. And event sourcing um, gives you a better way to track changes and log them when you're offline it doesn't really solve all of those other problems like what happened on the server from other people that i can get and re and replay them i mean it, i guess i guess it does a little bit you could potentially have like a centralized log and then get back changes but the problem is like when did those changes happen somebody sure. could have made a change two days ago and then you've been doing stuff for like all all day today and then you sync and then you get this this log, and I'm 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 honestly I'm probably not the best person to speak about it because I'm not entirely um, well versed on event sourcing and CQRS. I don't think they have like a way to order them. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but but here's 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 I think here's a good example about what. I feel like it's a problem and I, I could be totally wrong. So I, I hope sure. that somebody corrects me because I'm, I'm giving a talk about this in December. So somebody correct me before I give a talk and it's like physically recorded and people can watch me and <laughs> um, <laughs> see my mistakes. Um, let's say you make a bunch of changes to an item, like say you update a comment in like a list of comments. Yep. Um, and then somebody else does, does the same thing. like They make some change to the comment, like they change the comment text, I guess. Um, and then you undo your change, right? And so, first of all, let's hope that your app supports undo. This is like another rant of mine, where
0: like apps just don't support undo these days. Um, <laughs> Definitely not on the web, really. Like, yeah, it's like a it's it's like a very foreign concept on the web, even though it's like baked into everyone's muscle memory for something that they use. That's like a native application,
1: right? Well, and that's kind of a. I mean, it's related to all of this. Like, if all of your data exists on some server out there, undo is actually pretty hard. Because like you made some change. How do you undo the change on that remote server? If all your data is local, undo is just far easier. You literally just can just change it undo. Um, so that's, yeah, that's another thing. But if you, if you undo it and say in the event sourcing world, I'm assuming you would have a, a, a message that's like updated comment and then it has the new text in that event. And then you have an undo event and that's like appended onto the list after that. Um, And the other person has their their message that was, you know, change change the text as well. If you're syncing to the server, and let's say that your change to the comment got propagated to the server, and for some reason your your network crapped out, and uh, your undo event didn't get synced to the server, and then their, their undo and then their update comment event got synced to the server got appended onto the log. I'm assuming this is like a last write wins type type scenario. And that's sure. basically that's basically the core problem with all of with most uh offline support these days. They all assume a last write wins type scenario with whenever you contact the server, you are the one that wins. Um so basically, if you have an undo event and you uh you know push it to the server, um, let's say somebody else had some messages that got in there before you, you're gonna undo their change.
0: Yeah, instead of right? your own and
1: change instead of your unchanged. Um, and so I need to do a little bit more research, but I believe that those are the kinds of problems, which is more, 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 uh, like, uh, rooted in the fact that you're dealing with a last right, not not as much with event sourcing, but more rooted in the fact that if you're doing a last right wins on the server, yeah. you deal with all of these kind of problems. Okay. Um,
0: so I, I want to dig into this more because this is like really interesting to me um, and understand like how the CRDT stuff is different than that and how it solves some of these problems. So two questions. First one, I guess sort of more of like a technical implementation thing. You mentioned that like on the client, you have two databases. You have this, Uh, SQLite database. And then you have this other store that's keeping track of um, all these like CRDT messages. Uh, So I guess, first of all, is that is that even the right like language to use like CRDT message? Is that like a reasonable or like, what? How do you talk about them?
1: It's well, a um, CRDT, I think, technically refers to just the data type. Okay. Um, And so my message is table is a crdt i think that's the way to say it
0: okay and is is that messages table just in that sqlite database or is this a separate completely separate it's actually
1: yeah it's actually right now it's just stored straight as a table in the sqlite database and that that's kind of nice because it allows me to do transactional commits so like when i change the data i can also append the message to the crdt um, and it's all in one transaction
0: okay so then the other question was um i think like people are used to thinking about data as having like a single source of truth. And it sounds like the way that you're approaching this and the way like, like this whole CRDT stuff is works. Um, there's not supposed to be a single source of truth, right? It's like the idea is that this the database is distributed and that you have to somehow synchronize them. But like, there's not like one place that is like, this is the canonical Representation of like the database is that true?
1: yes, totally. so this is a distributed app um technically technically, uh, you could have five devices and they could be syncing peer to peer straight to each other and it's that's, it. that's, like eventually consistent so if you know client A and client E haven't synced, then everybody is not looking at the same stuff, but it's because they haven't synced yet, and so once everybody syncs, they will all be up to date, but yeah, it could totally be. Uh, not dependent on the cloud at all. So right right now I do have a centralized server that everybody kind of syncs through because it's just convenient when you go to the grocery store, you can yeah. pull up your
0: phone and, and download your
1: updates. Um, so, so
0: what is stored on the server? Like, are you storing the entire contents of the SQLite database for each um, sort of client or is it just the messages? it's just the messages
1: exactly got it okay so that's so really this-
0: interesting because i think like that's like a really key difference from what people are used to people are used to thinking of like yeah we keep like a client side data store but really it's just like a cache of whatever we have needed up until now from like the server which is the real source of truth but in this case it's like the server never actually has like the real state it only has like sort of the messages needed for all the clients to update their own database which is like their own source of truth like that's the only state that they really care about yep interesting. it's basically
1: just a buffer it's like a message buffer that allows things to go through and what's super interesting about that too is um you can do end-to-end encryption so like i there's like a privacy aspect here that's awesome yeah you that's... totally own your own data and the messages are end-to-end encrypted i can't even read them Um, As long as I just like store them for you, right?
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Okay, so how do you avoid then like the sorts of problems you were just talking about? Um, Like say like, here's like a, a simple example. On my computer, I go and delete a transaction that I've added into actual, but I don't have network access. And then on my phone, I go and edit that same transaction. But, and I do have, you know, network access. Like how do you, decide or how does this like architecture or this like whole concept of crdts in any way like automatically know like what the right outcome of that should be
1: Uh, yeah that's a great question so you're dealing with causality i think is what they call it um and i say they because i'm i'm very new to this and I, i hope i'm using the right terms um but so you basically need a way to um Strictly order all of the events in the entire system. So, like, if everybody got all of the messages, that they are applied in this exact same order. Okay. Um, and what you need for that is is, um, is a clock. And so every single, um, and so the like CRDTs basically just uh, say like that conflict-free is the is the critical part about CRDTs. Like, there's never any conflict. So if we're dealing, if two uh, two people edit the same item. Uh, CRDTs as a data structure, um, it doesn't care how you do it. Like CRDTs is a very broad term, and it's just describing that basically these data structures need to work so that however you mess- you combine the the messages, the same thing comes out. Um, now it doesn't care how you do that, um, and there are different approaches to making that happen. But in this case, um, and it was a very common technique to, to provide causality, is using a clock. And so there's different kind of clocks. There's like vector clocks. There's um, hybrid logical clocks. There's basically, these are things that you can tag every single message with that gives it some, the system, a way to rationalize about at what point in time that message happened. Okay. And so, um, and so the, the clock that I'm using is called a hybrid logical clock. And it basically, I'm not going to go into it a whole lot, but it's it basically sort of uses your timestamp, but it does it in a way that actually provides, like it doesn't actually depend on your, your real time because obviously you can't depend on your actual just date.now local timestamp, right? Because like clocks are totally messed up and janky and horrible. <laughs> um, like your clock will change when you're going across time zones and like stupid, like very stupid stuff. So you can't actually use your, your local timestamp, but you, there are ways to, to do that um, that say you made this change before user A, um, and after user C. And it provides a way to say, if you got all of the messages from everybody, you could essentially sort them and apply them in the exact same way. Um, And so in your case, what would happen is the the user who, I think the updated user was the one connected, and so they would update the comment. Um, I deleted it. Um, Now, in my case, because I'm using this um, HLC, it's actually sort of based on the timestamp. And what I like about that is, um, if I deleted it, uh, well, actually, in this case, if you're deleting and updating, what's what's going to be the result of that is a deleted item, like no matter what, because uh, you like somebody deleted the item, somebody updated it. That's not that's not a conflict in this um, in this system. Okay. The deletion just like flags a tombstone flag on, and that propagates to everybody else, um, and so. But but yeah. So basically, the the system has a way to say. Uh, or as, as a client, I can receive messages and I can say, did you do this before me? Or did you do this after me? If you did it before me, and it's the exact same item that I've updated since then, it just ignores that message. If you've done it after me, and it's the same item that I've changed, then I will apply it and I will see the updates on that item. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So do you have any in your app? Is there any types of changes that are like, relative changes like because those are the sorts of things i could imagine being like more complicated like imagine a situation where it's like well i'm increasing the amount of this transaction by five dollars um not like just like setting a new value um so this is probably hypothetical like if the app doesn't actually work this way but i'm still curious about like how this like whole approach of like distributed data and like the CRDT stuff would try and solve this because if I if one user says oh I've increased it by ten dollars another user decreases it by five dollars because they're trying to get to some specific value but then like now network access comes back and now like that ten dollar addition is applied now like you have a different result I guess is that even solvable or is that just you know it's it's doing what makes sense because like, it's just applying the changes.
1: Sure. Um, so no, everything there is no, um, in my system, everything is literally just, uh, every single message has the fields of like table column, uh, or table row, which is like table. And then the ID of the item Yep. and then the field, and then it sets that value. And so mine's actually pretty simple in the CRDT world. Mine's actually pretty simple, um, but there are, like, you can basically opt in or out of that behavior. You can have a CRDT that just says, these are the values. And so when you set this value, it's going to update it no matter what. Yeah. Or you can have a CRDT that says, like, these are the operations. Yeah. If you have an operations that, that are like plus five or minus five. The important thing is for in a CRDT that it has to be commutative. And what commutative, what commutativity means is that it doesn't matter what order the, the messages are applied in. So if you have the plus or minus stuff, in that case, you would. I don't think you would even need a clock, right? Because it doesn't matter when that happens. Sure. All you, you care about is all of the plus and minus messages are applied. Yeah. Um, so the order doesn't matter in that case. But so if you're you doing all,
0: like multiplication and like addition and subtraction, then it would matter because you can it, get different yes. mathematical results based on the order that you actually apply those operations.
1: Yes. Then you would have to do do it in the right order. So you. I mean, you can sort of. Ch- that's why CUDTs is a pretty broad term. Um, the, the only constraint is that it's conflict-free, c- commutative, and these other properties, and then you can sort of opt in to how you do that. For for my case, if you think about it, it's sort of just like a distributed database where you can set fields on rows, and that's the only thing that you can do, and that's propagated, that's always propagated across the system. So you do have to f- structure your database in a way that it won't corrupt, to be honest. Like, you do have to consider this Um, There are ways that like, if I have like a foreign key, you know, I need to think really hard to make sure that somebody else can't come and change that foreign key and point to something bad. Um, But it's it's not that hard to be honest. It's really not that hard
0: just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images. Uh, But after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, So here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, So you probably know that typically images are the heaviest reason your users have to download when they visit your site right usually way more than your javascript or css so in the past i would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like image alpha and image optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large uh, with cloudinary i can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it and then by just adding a parameter to the image url that i get back uh, when i go to serve it on my site cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, uh, request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter, and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL-based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, You can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, You can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff not just with images but also with videos too. Uh, You get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. Okay, so how does the syncing work, I guess? So you have um client A, which is say like the desktop client and the mobile client. On the desktop client, you make some changes to some transactions. Each one of those changes results in, like, a new message being added to this message table. That information is sent to the sort of centralized syncing server, which is updating its copy of, like, that messages table. So I guess the first question would be, like, what are you actually sending uh, when you do that? Are you just, like, sending, like... Are you sort of like, if you're offline, maybe batching these requests, but if you're online, you're just like making a request to the server every single time a change happens that says like, okay, here's like a new message to stick on the table. Here's a new message to stick on the table or.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. These are all like perfect questions. Cause these are all the questions that um, I had. And so you're basically asking like, how do you know which messages to send yeah, in a way? Exactly. Um, because like, if you, I mean, yes, right now uh, it. It throttles the, the request to like every second. So if you're making a bunch of changes, it will wait until um, you're done, and then wait one second, um, and then it will sync, mm-hmm. and then it will make sure to change or like update all of the stuff that 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 you just did. If you're offline, obviously it won't do that. But then when you come back offline, um, it will just sync. And so the question is, yeah, how do you know which messages to actually send? Because like I have now this messages table. Um, how do I know which messages are new? How do I know what state the server is in? Um, and so this gets into, um, actually something that came from, I believe it came from the blockchain world. And so okay. I hesitate to use the word blockchain because <laughs> it, you know, I don't want to, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a blockchain bro, but it's, uh, something called, called a Merkle tree. Um, so a Merkle tree is a data structure. It's actually really simple. It it sounds, it sounds scary, but it's a data structure that tracks, um, that hashes the content of, of data and it provides a way to, um, Basically, if you have a big thing of data, which in my case is a messages table, the Merkle tree, um, if if you imagine like cutting up that big table into chunks, hashing each table, like let's say we selected 10 10 messages at a time. If you hash all of the 10 messages, so then you have like a big list of messages that are you know every chunk of 10 messages. Well, then the Merkle tree, it's a tree, right? So it will take, if you imagine combining two chunks that are next to each other, and then hashing those hashes, and then you have a new node on top of that, and that's the parent of that node. Okay. You do that all the way up until you have one hash at the very top. Yep. And now you have a number that's a hash that tells you, that identifies what is in that messages table. Yep. And then you can take two different messages tables and compare them just with a hash. Then, sure, so this is like um, a
0: single hash. You're comparing, you're comparing like, yeah, what is the final hash of this version of the messages table versus the final hash of this version of the messages table? Yes, okay. so that's exactly. A start.
1: That's a start. And so, if they're different, so now, now what happens when they're different? Now you know something has changed in one of them. So how do you know what has changed? Um, you compare the hashes, and then you iterate down the tree until you find the hash. Um, like you can, you can do a uh, a breadth first search. I'm trying to think here. Um, <laughs>
0: yeah. but basically, I don't think it's you not know. important. But yeah, right. yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, like if. Yeah, sorry. If you ahead. think
1: about if you think about the messages table, um, if you like sorted it by the this clock and so that it's going from oldest to newest, you could think about walking down the tree and then you hit a hash that's the same with the server hash, right? And you can basically walk down to the message that is like, okay, this is the point in time which something has
0: changed. Yeah, you're just like sort of starting at like the most like the widest search and just sort of narrowing it down until you find out okay when did these like diverge yes Um, exactly at what point so are you storing all those hashes on the clients or do you like compute them on demand or
1: every client stores them um and you're totally right they actually could be um Computed on demand. Right now I'm storing them. Um, it's actually really it's it sounds like it could be a large data structure, but you can actually prune it. So I don't really actually need like the hashes from like a year like a year ago, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, there is so like, I actually
0: once you know like what is like yeah, where where is like the divergence at between like all clients, it's like we can just batch up everything before that into one hash because now right. we know yeah. that no there's never gonna be divergence there because yeah. accounted for every client yeah
1: exactly totally and if like if there is then you just throw an error and you'll be like hey like something's totally screwed up here right so there, yeah. there are a couple of cases that's like it checks a couple of things just to maintain sanity and it's like dude are like have you been offline for six months and now you're coming back offline no there's no way i'm gonna sync you because yeah, uh, it's
0: like export your data from your computer and import it here
1: <laughs> yeah right yeah just set up the syncing again yeah um but yeah, so yeah, it, it prunes them and then it stores it. It's a pretty tiny actually data structure and it, um, it actually stores it with the clock. So right now I consider the clock and the Merkle tree to be like the two important things where like the clock is the point that you are at, um, in the system and then the Merkle tree identifies like what you've done so far. And then every single client and the server has them so they can all compare each other.
0: So who does the work to determine um, what to send? Like does the client compare the hashes from, that it has and that the server has to determine what it needs to send or is it always sending any changes that get batched up and the server is actually what's determining um, like doing these comparisons? I mean, even head, I'm even trying to figure out like, like who needs to do the comparison and why they need to do the comparison. You know right. I mean?
1: Yeah, so I mean, really think about it, like the server is just kind of like a message buffer and it kind of just acts like a client. Like it really isn't that much different. So, pretty much everybody does, does the work. If you're, if you're the one syncing with another client, like you are the one initiating the sync, what happens is that you send, um, I, locally I, I keep like a last synced timestamp that's like, not, not, not like a real timestamp, like the, the hybrid logical clock timestamp. Mm-hmm. And that gives it just an easy way to be like, I think I probably just need to sync these messages since, uh, since this time. Um, it will send those messages and it's, no, I think it just sends those messages and then the server, since that timestamp, I—it's th- been a little while s- since I've looked at this code, but I think the server sends back messages from that timestamp as well. Um, so, like, you—you you have this point in time, which is like ten. Like, I—I've synced ten minutes ago. I'm gonna—I'm gonna send every message since ten minutes ago. The server's gonna send me back all messages since ten minutes ago. Yeah. The, the, or um, and I shouldn't even say s- server. The the other client. Also sends back with along with those messages its Merkle tree. So you have the client B's Merkle tree and your client A. And now you have your your Merkle tree. The the client who is initiating the sync is the one that does the comparison with the Merkle tree okay. and says, Oh, wow, something's even after I applied the messages that I got back from the server, we are not up to sync right now. And then it figures out the timestamp from the Merkle tree, which it needs to try try to sync, and then it does that exact same process again until it's in sync.
0: Okay. So the way that the syncing actually works, like my guess, so correct me if I'm wrong is you, once you've determined like what messages are new um, that came from like another client, you have to sort of go through all those messages and decide like which ones of these do I actually need to apply and which ones do I need to discard? Because there's a chance that I updated the description for a transaction after Um, the other client did, and we should keep mine because mine's, uh, the most recent or whatever. So are you just doing like a comparison there where you're basically looking through the messages and you're checking like, okay, this message is for this table on this ID on this field. And this is like the universal timestamp for this. Is there any other messages that have a greater timestamp that have like the same, like unique combination of those three keys?
1: Uh, Yes, that's exactly right.
0: So then you just discard anything that has changed since then. Otherwise, you just apply them to your own local copy of um, that data and you're just kind of off to the races.
1: Yep. And that's, I mean, if you think of like a bucket of messages and you just dump them all out and apply them, um, like, like if you sorted them first and then applied them, that is the same result, right? So if we just ignore the old ones, it's the exact same. Got it. So yeah, Yeah. that's exactly. And is that what you
0: do then? I guess like, are you actually ignoring? Like, I guess, yeah. What is like the easier way to to build it? Are you actually going through and ignoring them? Or are you just figuring out, okay, well, this is the oldest message from another client that I haven't applied yet. I'm going to take that and everything newer than it, including like my own messages and just like replay those in order.
1: Um, it's it's easier I think it's easier to just ignore it. Yeah. Because then um I'd have to think about it. But right now it seemed that was the first approach that I went with at least. You just kind of ignore it if it's older. I mean you already know that it's set newer, so you just kind of yeah. Yeah. You just kind of um,
0: ignore that message. Cool. So what was the hardest part would you say about like building something using this like distributed data syncing approach like is there anything that you remember hitting that was just like a really nasty problem to solve um that you think is worth talking about
1: one of the hardest things at a high level was just whenever you do something novel right i mean like i'm doing i'm writing something that's pretty low level um so i just didn't have a whole like a whole lot of resources like i had some friends that were helping me out Um, So it was, it was hard overall and I'm still, I did it. I'm going to stick with it. Um, It probably wasn't the best like startup choice. You know, if I was trying to actually really do a startup and make a lot of money, like I probably, I probably could have launched this product a lot like earlier and maybe was, it would have been a little bit more stable. Um, But I'm glad where I am. I'm glad that I am where I am right now because um, I think I have a, a competitive edge and I'm also positioned to have like a privacy focused um stance which i think is going to become really important in like five or ten years but specifically bug wise i do i would say now you are dealing with an eventually consistent database and what that means is that you might have data that's actually not fully conformed like it's not strongly consistent right when like you might have a half filled in transaction like you can't really you can't assume that a transaction is fully uh like it might be Technically speaking, it could have a foreign key. Like, say, there's um, there's a payee table, which is basically like the the, the name of the person that you pay to, um, and that's actually a separate table. And there's a foreign key to that table. You could have a foreign key that's an ID into that table that actually doesn't even exist yet, right? Because that it's filling in the slots of, of the of the fields in the database. So it's 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 eventually consistent. Um, I haven't actually run into bugs yet um because this hasn't really been tested at the like you know tens of thousands of users scale i do think it would scale though because literally it's distributed i mean there's actually not a whole lot of different than uh what i i have some heavy users and they haven't hit any syncing problems yet so i do think it would scale well but there are some hairy there's nothing hairy that's happened yet there are some hairy things that could happen Um, that I haven't really, I think what you basically need to to come back on top of that is say, when you're querying your data, you need to only query things that you know are fully consistent. So when I'm querying transactions, I could say, if the pay is pointing to something that's null, then you just ignore that transaction. Like you act like it doesn't even exist yet. Um, So you kind of have to restructure a lot of of different things. And there's other cases where, um, like I can, uh, I can like, merge categories and if you did that if you merge a category but then this other user updated the, the old category there's some like weird things that could happen there and so i had to structure my database in a specific way to where i knew that those like specific fields or could only be updated like in a specific way and i didn't have to um like the the basically i got rid of the original consistency problem by changing how my data structure was structured and there. Um, like at read time, I actually query through a separate table as like, that's like a pointer table. And that, that way I can just change that one pointer. Um, and then in the whole entire future, I will, that pointer will be um, updated. Whereas instead of, if you like, um, it's kind of like normalizing your data even, even, even more. Whereas if you denormalize your data, in every single database, you have like one, like something could be duplicated in several places. But if you're eventually consistent, it might not be fully propagated all the way through yet. But if you normalize it as much as you possibly can, so that there are some things that are there, but they've been conceptual. You know, I haven't actually had a user that's like, hey, my data is corrupt. Like, I don't know why I haven't actually haven't hasn't actually happened yet. Yeah, but it, it could.
0: Would you would like um like a sort of naive or simple example of what you're talking about there be like like you were saying with these categories. So you merge categories and maybe that results, if you were building it, maybe a slightly different way than you ended up building it. Like maybe what you would think to do is, okay, well we create a new record and we like trash the old records. And now we have a new record that represents this like merged category. But now some message somewhere is saying like we're editing that original category name or something or something about it in some way. Now, like the record that it's trying to edit doesn't even exist. So, because of the way that you merge stuff. So you have to be really careful to sort of make sure that like everything is still around and that you're just like always trying to just like reference like the original source of things so that the changes can actually be applied and not be trying to be applied against like nothing.
1: Yeah, totally. So, I mean, you solve you solve that basic problem by actually never deleting anything. So, in a distributed system, you can't delete anything, right? Because you have no idea when a message could come through to, to to update it. So, every single item has like a tombstone flag, um, and if it's set to zero, it's alive. If it's set to one, then it's dead. Um, and so that way, if a message comes in later and that that updates it, it just updates it. But the UI is just like, I don't care. It's it's dead. Like I don't even show it anymore but there are still problems that, like you just mentioned like if you merge categories i think this was the problem if i merge categories and when you go back to your transactions all of the categories that were old um, it should say it should say that the all of the transactions that had that old category should should point to the new category so if you change it from food to like restaurants it should all say restaurants well now another client b syncs and they still have a transaction that points to food right and then if food shows up in your in your transaction list i mean that sucks and it will show up because it's not we didn't actually delete it it's tombstoned but now you're like well now i'm seeing food again how is that even remotely possible from the from the user that's a horrible experience cuz they're like i deleted it like yeah. it's kind of this weird um, but yes if you d- if you structure your data in the right way you can solve this problem by just sort
0: of introducing like an intermediary reference in between where it's like this is pointing at this which is going to be pointing at food or um restaurants and now that you can apply that change it says well yeah the category that like things pointing at food points at now yeah i get what you're saying it's um interesting and confusing but yeah makes sense just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is DigitalOcean. So DigitalOcean is a simple, developer-friendly cloud platform optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. Uh, I've personally been a customer of DigitalOcean for about five years, and I use them to host all of my server-side projects, like my custom course platform, for example, which is built with Laravel. A lot of the guests that I've had on the show in the past are DigitalOcean. Customers as well. Uh, for example, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, he uses DigitalOcean to host envoyer and Laravel Forge. And Jeffrey Way actually uses DigitalOcean to host laracast as well. Uh, one of DigitalOcean's newest features that I'm personally really excited about is managed databases, uh, which lets you spin up a completely managed database server so you don't have to worry about anything like backups, uh, managing read only replicas, or just general server maintenance. Now, DigitalOcean is already an extremely affordable service. You can spin up a server for as little as five dollars a month, but they've been kind enough to offer a free $50 credit to full stack radio listeners. So head over to do.co slash full stack, all one word, to claim your $50 credit. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. Um, okay, so I got two other questions for you. Um the first one is So you're building this thing, like, with Electron, which means you can use SQLite and just, like, query SQLite straight up. Um, Just from, like, the way that you actually built stuff and, like, tried to make the code, like, ergonomic and maintainable, how directly are you, like, accessing the SQLite stuff? And I guess the reason I ask this, which just kind of pertains to the next question, is because I saw you talking on Twitter about how there's a bunch of stuff with Electron that is kind of making you wish that you had built this as, like, a local first web app that like lived in um that you know you just access through like a regular browser where of course you can't use sqlite as far as i know anyways um, to be able to like query your data um so i guess yeah i guess my question is like you know a lot of people are using like redux with their react apps and stuff like that to access their data are you doing anything like that or are you just you know querying stuff when you need it um or you have any sort of interesting like layers in between that you think are worth talking about.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, definitely an interesting thing to talk about. I, I, I use Redux very, very lightly on the client. Um, and so it just stores, it just does that so that it can synchronously access some of the data, like your, like your accounts. It's like, usually you only have two accounts. Maybe you have 10, like we're not talking about anything huge at all. Yeah. Um, but architecturally, there is a backend and a front end, and that has still served very well, even though it's a single encapsulated app. I think it's always good to separate out. I mean, if anything, we're just talking about like keep the UI thread, the UI thread, right, and then have a background process. Um, and so there is a backend and a front end. It's all it's all part of one app. Um, so the backend just freely queries SQLite. Yeah, it um it for. For, for reads at least, like it, it freely does selects. Um, when you do the updates and deletes and stuff like that, I have some helper functions that do that because that has to go through the, the CRDT system. But essentially, it freely queries SQLite um, and the front end the front-end queries the back-end, there's just, like, some methods that's, like, get accounts that it will load in, and then it does it does keep that around just so that it doesn't, you know, because it's nice to have things um, synchronous that I can just access. I don't always have to, like, await on it. Sure. Um, but, yeah, essentially, the back-end freely queries SQLite. My tweet, this is a super interesting thing to talk about. Um, I won't go into it a whole lot. You have another question. But, basically, Electron is great. Um, the, my biggest... My biggest th- the biggest thing that keeps haunting me like this, like a ghost behind my shoulder, <laughs> it's just it's just the the security aspects of it. Like the more and more I'm thinking about through all these scenarios about um, native apps, uh, I just you really just can't trust them. I mean, we're talking about like a user's computer. And now if we're talking with about a distributed local app, it kind of sucks that we're now issuing security onto the user Whereas if you have a web app and you have one single database that's centralized and everybody's in the browser, you are taking on the responsibility of making sure that your entire data is secured, right? Whether it's in like Oz or um, however it is, like you are controlling the user's data and you're and they are trusting you to keep that secure. Well, now if everybody owns their own data and it's local on their computer, you're kind of issuing security onto them, right? And saying like you need to keep your computer secure so that your data isn't um it's just so that your data doesn't, like, doesn't get accessed or, or anything. And the, the real critical thing is I'm about to launch automatic trans- transaction downloading. So people are going to be entering banking username and passwords into their app, which is probably the most, crit- besides maybe your Gmail password, probably your most critical security sensitive data. Um, and I am not about to be responsible for that getting leaked. Um, and so I've, I've been thinking about it like, first of all, for your local Electron app, um, you can actually unpack the JavaScript, change it, and then just repack it. Um, and so I'm thinking somebody could totally mock out like Plaid's user interface, get somebody to enter their username and pass for their bank, and then send it off somewhere else. And I have, I mean, theoretically, that would be difficult because I have cores enabled and like you can't send requests to anywhere. But honestly, I just don't trust it. Like if you can if you can change the JavaScript in your, in your app, I mean, you can do anything. Um, and so I'm, if there's, if any app on your computer is, um, is compromised and like if, if actual, it's so small right now, nobody would actually target it, but I'm not willing to bet anything on the fact that somebody is not going to target actual and like modify its JS and then get your username and passwords. Like the thing that's so good about the web is that you have, like, it really is a user agent for you. And you can look at that URL, and like, there's a bunch of like social like uh, phishing techniques to get it, but that's that still like, there's still a lot of problems, and it's still a very hard problem. But as a user, what's so critical about browsers is at least you have that URL bar that if you read it very closely, you have something to look at and say, yes, I am actually on stripe.com. I can look at this or it's like maybe somebody like does something crazy that like makes it look like you're on Stripe. But if you really wanted to make sure you could click on that certificate, make sure it's Stripes and like you could actually validate validate it yourself. There's no, nothing to do that with desktop apps, right? You can't, when you're looking at something, you can't know for sure where that code has been loaded from. And there are like, there's like privileged code. You can like uh, notarize and like code sign and do everything you can. If you install apps from the app store, that is a lot more secure Um, So there are ways to do it, but I just don't trust, I've I've trusted the more and more I'm thinking about how people could compromise actual, I'm getting a little bit like, oh man, like I wish, like I'm probably going to throw people out to a browser when they enter their username, their banking username and pass, because then they can say, make sure you're at like, like, you know, bank.actual.com or whatever it is. Um, And so, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot to talk about there, but that's kind of would have been processing. Yeah,
0: I think, th- I think that makes sense. So if you were going to do it as, like, a web app instead, you that was totally still, like, offline, local first, um, none of those risks exist. Like, no one can take the code that Chrome has, like, cached locally to run your app without being connected to the network and make the same sort of JavaScript changes there. Like, the browser sandbox will just, like, reject that sort of thing?
1: Um, so I think so. I actually looked into it. It looks... I think they might be able to read like if I stored everything in index I think they would be able to read that I think there is I don't think like browsers encrypt that unfortunately. Um, But now we're talking about for the actual code, it would live in a service worker. And I, I have no idea how that works. Like, I'm pretty sure a service worker is like a crazy in memory thing. And I, I, I'm I'm assuming that basically browsers have a way to to make sure that people can't go in and modify service sure. workers. You're at least punting code.
0: that like responsibility to them either way because that does sure. seem like something that they should be like if that's a risk. That seems like a risk that they should be responsible for sure. tackling, which is like yes. yeah, nice to just like offload some of that scary stuff if you can okay so if you were going to build this as a as a web app you kind of just alluded to it now but you you mentioned that you have this sort of front-end back-end architecture already even in like the electron app and i don't know basically anything about service workers except that they are my understanding is it's javascript that gets downloaded when you first visit a site that persists forever that the browser is able to like boot up when you visit a site in lieu of like the network existing and just act as if it was able to get that stuff, and is that kind of like that service worker is where like the back end of like the client app would currently live, or like both, or like both the front end and the back end, or what's the right way to think about that?
1: My idea right now is that yeah, this the back end would essentially just live in the service worker um, because that's I mean I basically I'm taking my current architecture which is. You can have multiple clients. You could have uh, multiple, I mean, you can't do it right now, but you could have multiple windows of actual all talking to the same background process. Sure. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting now that I'm, I'm not necessarily going to port to the web. I don't have time right now for sure. I might, it might eventually. Um, I'd also have to see do like a survey with my users to see sure. if they would hate that. Yeah. But um, the idea would be to just like take the existing architecture and, and do the same thing on the web um which is funny because I don't know. It's weird that nobody else is doing this because now I'm so used to this. It's like of course I'm of course I would do it this way. But the back the service worker would be the back end and then whatever tab you're on, it's just a client to that one service worker. And I've seen like other this is not a totally new idea. I've seen like Sebastian on the React Core team talk about like how cool how cool this kind of stuff would be. I've I've seen a couple other people like reference this um most of them are talking about using the service worker as just a caching layer though so i think what's super interesting is that now i'm in the position to literally just use the service worker as your app i mean it, it is your distributed app um and so it would be the backend would just be running in the service worker um and this is probably like the coolest thing ever because um you would have tabs like the 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 thing that kind of sucks about SPAs and progressive web apps and stuff like that is that you're now locked into just like one tab. Um, And it's the same thing on desktop. You just have one window. Uh, But we could really leverage what's great about the web, which is this like really free form. You can open up tabs. You can put them in tab groups. You can like some extensions allow you to like stash away tabs for later. Um, But... Right now with SPA is like you'd have to re- re- like reload the entire app. You don't know if you're going between tabs, like if one is like an old state, because obviously web apps, of course, they don't like actually update this, the UI when the server changes. Like my, when my architecture like always pushes out changes to all clients and it always updates the UI. But now like you could open up, you could be looking at your budget, then you could open up like an account in a different tab, and then you could go between those tabs and uh, like they would always be in sync. The UI would always be up to date. And so it's kind of this cool, like, hybrid model of taking the advantage of, of both, you know, advantages of both architectures. Um, that, I mean, that that seems super interesting to me. And it's it's something that I'm kind of
0: interested to to explore. Really cool. So if you were going to do this, um, hypothetically, you couldn't use SQLite anymore, I assume. Is that true?
1: Yeah, so this is the big sticking point. I mean, this is why I always kind of stuck to... to a local app is uh i really like this is financial data and SQLite is just such a good fit it's so fast it's so it's it's so beautiful um i th- i don't know how, how this would work yet i think um i have that messages table that i would probably use index db for that and that would be totally fine and then what i would look into is using the um there's sql.js which is that WebAssembly compiled yeah sqlite library and um probably use that somehow I, I'm not entirely sure how this works yet but I think basically I think the SQLite database because if you think about it that the database is really just a projection of the uh, message table yeah. right if you just replayed all of those messages into a SQLite table you could actually build up that real thing in memory so technically I could um te- technically when you first load the app it could take all of the messages from in- index DB and shove them all into a SQL.js like, in memory database. And honestly, it'd probably even be faster than like what I'm doing right now, because it would never have to actually persist that that to disk. And so it's, I don't know, that, that's some stuff I need to figure out.
0: Cool, man. Well, I, I won't take up any more of your time. We've been going for, for quite a while now, so it's probably a good time to wrap up. But um, what's sort of the best way for people to keep up with like what you're working on, and where can they head to uh, check out Actual if they're interested in learning more about uh, this app?
1: You can go to actualbudget.com. That's the website. You can check it out there. There's um, I just launched, launched a documentation um, section that uh, explains things a lot better. Uh, probably the best way to follow me is just on Twitter, Jay Longster on, on, on Twitter. That's where I tweet about a bunch of stuff.
0: Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for giving me your time and coming out and chatting with me about this stuff. I learned a ton, and I think uh, people are going to really enjoy this conversation. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with James. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 126. Thanks to Cloudinary and DigitalOcean for sponsoring the podcast this week, and we'll see you next time.